sometimes I will tell bike advocates, if people are not complaining about what you're doing, then that means you're not doing anything. Well, that's an interesting perspective. That's from Jeff Mapes. Jeff, my guest this week, he's the author of Pedaling Revolution, How Cyclists Are Changing American Cities. Jeff chronicles the modern-day bicycle movement in this country. And you're listening to CDM Cyclist, and I'm your host, Frank Peters, back with you again. Thanks so much for joining me, and, and thank you if you came to the show via coronadelmartoday.com. Welcome. Well, Jeff, I have uh, excuses to go to Portland these days. Of course, it's it's arguably the best city in the country for cycling. They've been at it a long time. And now I have family in the Portland area. You know, I went to school. I went to the University of Oregon just one year on the exchange program many, many years ago. So what do you know? I still have good friends in the Portland area. And I used all of these reasons to go visit, and I picked up the phone, made contact with Jeff, and sure, he'd sit down with me. We met at his office. He's a political writer for the Oregonian newspaper, which I think is a great perspective to have for chronicling the whole bicycle movement. It's a political story, as much as anything. Well, and before we get started, I'd like to say thank you to my sponsor, that's BikeTiresDirect.com. Of course, tires, equipment, apparel, everything you need to equip your bicycle for safe riding. Check them out, please. BikeTiresDirect.com Well, Jeff, you'll hear me acknowledge towards the end of the interview, the book had a big influence on me as I look back at my interest in becoming a bike advocate. I look back to the stories that I read about in Pedaling Revolution. I've given away many copies. Many times those copies don't come back. Charlie Gandy gave me a copy. You saw that in the video uh, a few shows ago. And I've gone out and since bought extra copies for myself. So I get a kick out of it, of course, as I'm anticipating my trip to Portland. I'm rereading the book and making lots of notes, underlining favorite passages, uh, starring paragraphs, and... Really, I feel like I'm so well-prepared, got a lot of clever questions ready for Jeff. But I'm going to meet with him just shortly after I land in Portland. My brother-in-law picks me up at the airport. I throw all my suitcases. I brought my whole suitcase full of audio gear. Have just enough time. Well, I have time to drop by the hotel. And so I drop off my suitcase and in it is the book with all my notes, all my questions. And I don't realize that until just minutes before I sit down with Jeff. But what do you know? I don't know that it mattered. I was prepared well enough. And Jeff, he's just a fountain of knowledge when it comes to this whole movement, the modern bicycling movement in this country. Let's listen. Jeff, uh, what cities did you visit as you put this book together? You know, I went to a lot of places. I worked on this for uh, really about uh, four years almost. I uh, I live in Portland, of course, where uh, cycling is very big, and I'm sure we'll get into that. So I spent a lot of time here. Uh, 
went down to uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco, um, uh, Davis nearby there, yeah. which is famous as a as a bike city, Berkeley, uh, down to uh, Los Angeles, San Diego, uh, Seattle, uh, Chicago, Madison, Wisconsin. So you like to travel. Yeah, well, I've found opportunities, New York. And perhaps most exciting, I I, uh, did a couple trips to the Netherlands and several cities there, including Amsterdam, of course. Well, of course, they're famous for their – they're ahead of us is one way to put it, I suppose, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's You know, one thing that's very striking is that the – you talk to bike advocates in the U.S. and the number of them that were inspired – by their trips to places like Amsterdam or Copenhagen, which I've also since visited after my book came out. And I got to tell you, you really can see it when you go there because, uh, you know, as I mentioned in my book, for somebody who's, you know, enthusiastic about cycling and really thinks it can be a part of daily life, to go to a place like Amsterdam is, is like going to Cuba and Finding that you know communism produces health, happiness, higher incomes. Uh, you know, you know how all that stuff. People say, well, you know, I, I remember when we were young, and people would say, well, socialism is so great. Where are you going to find where it works well, or where are you going to find this kind of thing? And and the truth is, you go to Copenhagen and Amsterdam, and those are cities that work wonderfully for bicycles, and people have very uh, modern. First world lifestyles. They're they're well to do. Uh, they're happy. I mean, it is not uh, like they're being kept in abject poverty right, or anything. Right. In fact, they have a lot of mobility, and it, it works really, really well. Now, what they don't have maybe is like their own General Motors, right? Uh, there's certainly, uh, and, and that's actually probably true in, in uh, Copenhagen and Denmark. They have a very, very high car tax there, and. So there's no doubt that there is a discouragement to owning cars. Yet, lots and lots of, you know, car ownership is, is quite ubiquitous in Denmark. And particularly, you know, this is really true. This is true in the Netherlands. This is really true everywhere is that in the cities, uh, increasingly lifestyles are less car oriented than they are in suburban and rural settings. And, and this is true. Why uh, is that, Jeff? In, well, I mean, it's just a simple thing in cities. As they get larger and more complex and more crowded, um, it almost it becomes harder to uh, to get around by car. And, and bicycles can be really elegant solutions uh, in in urban settings. You know, where you're mostly talking about short trips, uh, where it's often hard, for example, to, to find a parking space when you're driving. So I, I I think that's just a very logical thing. I'll give you one example. I lived in Washington, D.C. I was a young journalist there from about, let's see, 1979 to 1984. Uh, we had a car when we lived in Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, parking was somewhat difficult there. I certainly took the bus and light rail a lot, or not light rail, heavy rail there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and did ride my bike a fair amount, although you didn't see many bike commuters and I didn't really commute much by bike. Now, fast forward to now, my daughter lives in Washington, D.C down near downtown, she finds it too much of a hassle to even own a car. And it, it's true. It's parking's become much more expensive. The roads are much more congested. It really is almost more of a burden to own a car now than, than it's worth it for many people in Washington, D.C., in you know sure. the central part of it. Sure. 
So I suppose you've got to find that right balance, though, huh? If uh, some cities just, you know, so much traffic, even a bicycle enthusiast might be intimidated, huh? Well, that that is true, and that that's you know that that's frankly one of the really big issues uh, in terms of whether we're going to have bicycling as a a mainstream alternative in the United States is that in a lot of places we really have not accommodated bicycling much. And as a result, the main people who are out there bicycling or, you know, some have called it kind of the strong and the fearless, uh, that, that small percentage of really hardy riders, people who have learned how to ride in traffic. And yes, there are techniques that you can use for riding in, um, in, in, pretty intense vehicle traffic and do pretty well. But it's certainly not for everybody, and it's certainly not the kind of thing that's going to get the kind of ridership that you see in Copenhagen or in Amsterdam. Um, So part of it is having uh, bikeways of various types and the the kind of facilities uh, that encourage ridership. And and frankly, you know, there's another issue, and it's a tougher issue. We haven't really got into this in the U.S. I mean, there is no doubt that in – Many European cities, particularly the two that I keep bringing up, uh, they have made it more difficult to drive your car in the city. And as a result, that's made other alternatives, whether mass transit or bicycling, more attractive. So that that is uh, a choice out there. Now, one thing that is happening in American cities, and you see it all over the place, is even without an explicit attempt to make driving more difficult in cities. I mean, it just is happening as they get bigger and more crowded. Um, parking gets more expensive. Sure. So, so it, you know, it, it, it's something that just seems to inevitably be happening in most cities anyway. Mm-hmm. I just came from Seattle. I spent a few days in Seattle, and uh, somebody was telling me uh, forecasts for future job growth in downtown Seattle – there's no room for all the cars, for right. all the people where they expect those jobs to. And, and in smaller ways, you know, the, the perhaps the most dramatic example, I mean, everybody knows how dense and crowded New York City is already. And, you know, they've talked in the next uh, 15, 20 years, I think, of, of adding another million people to New York City. You know, where are you going to put a million people? I mean, that's that's a tough one They've they're scratching their, their head over. It's certainly not going to be with another several hundred thousand cars on their street, right. you know, which are already gridlocked. Right. But then at the same time, uh, a friend just said, uh, New York City, it, it's not a good example uh, if you're a budding uh, bicycle advocate because what city can relate to New York right. City? They're, it's so unique in that way. Huh? But great story, great leadership. So in the book, you talk about their uh, director of transportation, is it Sadiq Khan? Janet Sadiq Khan, right. Yeah. You know, it's funny. When I decided to to investigate New York, part of it was that I thought not so much that New York was doing amazing things for cyclists or anything necessarily particularly interesting, but I thought it would be good to, to look into New York because everybody's familiar with the city. You know, it's – I mean, even if you've never been to New York, you know, you've probably seen it on – innumerable law and order episodes, I mean, <laughs> right, right, right. you know, the movies. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a city iconic. that everybody can relate. It's yes. iconic. Everybody can relate to it. And even in New York, I mean, where a majority actually of the residents do not own cars. So that makes them very unusual in the U S I mean, the streets are choked with automobile traffic. Uh, I mean, they're, 
there are an amazing number of people who commute using their cars into Manhattan. And you'd think, who in their right mind would do that? But, the you know, there are tons of people who do that. And, and yes, it is a place that has a strong cycling culture, and that made it interesting to me, and, and has a lot of potential because distances are relatively short there. It's flat. I mean, there there's a lot that, that makes the bike a really good uh, yeah. alternative. It's easier to, to live your life maybe in a shorter right. radius and, and then there. The, yeah. the, the sort of the amazing thing over, you know, after I'd been going there for a couple of years, uh, Jeanette Sadek Khan uh, became the transportation commissioner and really started an aggressive push saying, you know what, we've turned over a lot of our public space to cars and that's not necessarily producing the most bang for the buck. Um, you know, think of Times Square, another iconic location, jammed to the, just absolutely jammed with, with tourists and residents. I mean, to the, to the point wall you can to hardly, wall. right, yeah. to the point you can hardly walk on the sidewalks. <laughs> and, and, and then meanwhile, you know, we've devoted most of Times Square to all these streets running together there. But, but those streets carry just a fraction of the, the number of people who want to use that location, the number of people walking there. She closed Broadway going through Times Square and for several blocks, both before and afterwards. And Times Square has really been transformed. For the first time, you feel like you can go to tra- Times Square, stand there and gawk and really enjoy the whole panorama of, you know, all these amazing, uh, you know, Vistas, neon yeah. <laughs> uh, light boards and the right. whole thing and, and really appreciate the public space. And you know what? Traffic still flows pretty well through there, or at least I should say it, it doesn't flow really any worse than it did before because you had all these strange angled streets and they've kind of, you know, fiddled with the, uh, with the traffic flow on that. Now, uh, Jeff, there have been just recently, you've seen them too, uh, stories about pushback on cyclists in New York. They, uh, right. Uh, it's interesting to watch the uh, competition is basically what it is, huh? Well, here's the situation, and you know, as a as a political reporter, I think this is familiar to me. Is any time a movement gets big enough to to attract some attention, to start affecting how things are, there is going to be pushback. And cyclists and and motorists don't always fit comfortably. Cyclists and pedestrians don't always fit comfortably. So it doesn't surprise me that you're going to have people starting to question. Uh, the, the resources put into it, to starting to say, well, I don't like having these cyclists. It makes me nervous having them next to me in cars. I mean, I, I very much understand that. And, you know, it's, it's a familiar thing I've seen in any number of kind of, uh, political fights, you know, that I've, I've covered over the decades. So this, this does not, uh, surprise me at all. You know, in fact, I'll, sometimes I will tell, bike advocates, if people are not complaining about what you're doing, then that means you're not doing anything. Yeah, you're not pushing So, So to an extent, it's a sign of success. But it's also going to be an interesting challenge. You know, um, Portland, you know, has really dramatically increased its share of people who use bikes, you know, for commuting and, you know, other forms of transportation to the point that, you know, uh, eight or nine percent of the population describes their bicycle as their primary transportation vehicle. And that's a much larger number, you know, two, three times what it, what it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So it's really been a dramatic increase. And every 
sort of each bump up uh, along the way, there's been people saying, oh, the city's spent too much on bikes. It's, you know, it's, uh, right. you know, right. been prioritizing them at the expense of everybody else. And, yeah. I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. But, but it's like nickels and dimes most of the time, isn't it, to do some of these bike improvements? Yeah, the, I mean, to- as transportation improvements go, it, it's all been pretty cheap. The city has an estimate that they've spent about $65 million over the years on bikeway improvements. I did an estimate one time where I sort of added in everything you could kind of even basically say had anything to do with bikes, even if part of the project had, you know, recreational purposes, you know, for runners or pedestrians, that sort of thing. And, and even then, I came up with less than the cost of what the city spent reconfiguring one freeway interchange. In fact, it wasn't even a freeway interchange. It was a freeway off ramps, you know, to connecting to some major streets and transportation is, is expensive. You know, they're talking about replacing a, um, interstate bridge or an inter I five between going over the Columbia river between Oregon and Washington, you know, just here in Portland. And, and this is a, an over $3 billion project is a point of comparison. That's one bridge, arguably a very important one and a very important artery. And the bicycling advocates persuaded the city to adopt a 20-year bike plan that really is more a wish list than everything else of everything they'd like to do. Over 20 years, they're talking about spending, uh, I think it's about $600 million. Now, that's also a lot of money. Uh, Of course, if you take it over 20 years, that's $30 million a year. And that's citywide. It would have an impact on the entire city compared to, you know, $3 billion in one small, but once again, arguably very important uh, artery. And, and once again, the point is not to say, well, they should do the bike plan and they shouldn't do this bridge, but just to point out that transportation improvements are, are very expensive and bike improvements are relatively you know, they're pretty cost-effective right. compared to, to other ones. I've been observing, there was just a headline I saw a few days ago, no fatalities in Portland last year. Or, no bike fatalities. No bike. That's, right. that's right, yeah. And, and I think um, that's in the last decade, there's been four or five years where there have been no fatalities, which is very encouraging given the huge growth in bicycle traffic in that same time. And so does that prove that if you make these safety improvements, you do reduce? Well, risk? I think what it, what it proves is uh, it really, to me, I think it demonstrates what's been called the whole safety in numbers theory. And that is the more cyclists you have out on the street, the safer it becomes really kind of for everybody, but certainly for cyclists. And it makes sense that if you're aware of something – you know, as a motorist, say, if you're used to driving past a school every day and you always see school children there, you're going to be very aware of that versus somebody who, say, is driving up that street for the first time and doesn't know that there that there's children there. So maybe a better example, you're driving down a street and all of a sudden a bunch of kids appear from out of nowhere. And um, so that I think it really proves the safety and number theory. You know, it, it's fascinating it's almost a chicken and egg things and people will argue about, well, do bike lanes increase safety? And, and, you know, the researchers study that sort of thing and 
you know, argue about the statistics, whether there's more or fewer crashes when you put bike lanes in. But one thing seems clear, and that is that bike lanes attract more bicyclists, and that attracts safety. That contributes to safety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the book, you talk about safety in numbers, and then you make a comment about uh, uh, women. Seeing more women on bicycles has an interesting effect. What was that point, Jeff? Well, I think uh, it is a real sign of safety when you start seeing um, a, a much more equal split, gender split out on the on the street when it comes to cyclists. And generally speaking, this is true if you're if you're in a place where there are not as many cyclists around. Inevitably, you're going you're going to see it very much skewed toward toward men. And in the U.S., every even in Portland, there are more. You know that when they do the counts of cyclists, there are more men than women out there. Without getting too deep, deeply into gender roles and all that, you know, there. I think it's safe to say that on average, men maybe are a little more, um, uh, are, are women a little more risk averse uh, than men. Now you go to to the best European cycling cities, and oftentimes you'll see more women. You know, the the statistics are a little more lopsided in in favor of women. So. Um, so it's kind of like sign. the canary and the coal yeah. mine in a yeah. way. Yeah. When you see more I'm not going to call women canaries, but you go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now, uh, one thing I wanted to share with you, I get a kick out of it. I laughed right in one of my friend's faces the other day when uh, he like wagged his finger at me. He saw me suiting up and said, watch out for the cars out there. In part because people have been saying that to me. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm going to meetings and they see me with the helmet if they don't see the bike. And people have been cautioning me and I kind of get a kick out of it. In part, I guess I'm smiling because uh, they're afraid. It signals they're afraid. That happened to you too, Jeff? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That reaction from your friends. Be careful. Watch out for the cars. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is that as cycling has become more of a mainstream activity in Portland as it's become more of a mainstream uh, transportation uh, use alternative. What do you want to say? For example, you know, we have quite a few bike commuters here at the newspaper where I work. You don't get those comments quite as much. You still, you know, people still say, Hey, be careful out there. Heck, I say it to my fellow bike commuters sometime. Funny story. One time I was, riding an elevator with, with an editor who had always kind of looked at me skeptically, particularly if I was out riding on a rainy or a cold day. You know, he's kind of looking at me. I can't remember what the weather was like, but I, th- I think it must have been bad because he was kind of looking at me like, I can't believe you're out going out there on a day like this. And, and I essentially said, well, you know, if you could golf to work, would you do it? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know. Oh, uh, you got him there, huh? Yeah, he kind of, you know, kind of. You could just sort of see the wheels turn in his head, and it kind of clicked in a certain way that it hadn't before, because he is a, he is a golf uh, aficionado. Yeah, right. So is this friend of mine. I'm going to try that on him next time. <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah. So, Jeff, you're a political writer here at the paper. Mm-hmm. That make you well suited. I mean, there's a big political component to these. Well, cities. you know, one thing I can tell you as a career political reporter. Everything is about politics. You everything. Know? There you Air, go. Politics is about everything. I Nothing guess. happens without politics. That's no. right. And and so I think it was a useful uh, device for for examining the whole bicycle culture of understanding politics. Uh, you know, and how it had 
seeped into it and where it was going. And, and nobody had really taken a deep look at that before. Um, you know, I mean, certainly in a, in a book length way, like I did trying to really understand the roots of the bike advocacy movement in this country, where it had gone, where it was going. And certainly having that political experience was, was very, very useful to me. And the feedback you get from your readers, Jeff? You know, it's been really heartening, I have to say. Um, you know, it was just a, a small university press that publishes. It sold well, reviewed in the New York Times by none other than David Byrne, you know, the, the musician yes. from Talking Head. And it, But I, I have to say one of the, the things that's really been the most pleasing about it uh, is when I talk to people who say, you know, I, I was inspired by that to – to, to get on my bike for the first time, uh, you know, in years. And, and a lot of people who say, you know, I finally kind of, after reading your book, understood what people have been talking about or why I say these people out on their bikes before. So, you know, so as a journalist, sense, you can't have anything better than can't that. can't have anything better than that. So it's, it's more than just the satisfactions of people telling you that you are a good writer. You're affecting people's lives. Yeah, like. yeah, that's that. That's always pleasing. In daily journalism, you oftentimes wonder what kind of impact you have. Yeah, so, yeah. Sure. Yeah, that is pleasing. Yeah. How about if you were to reprint the book next month? You've got a new chapter in mind? or Well, I've got several ideas in mind. You know, I, I, you know, one thing that this bike book did and all the research I did on it, I mean, it, it, it got me kind of fascinated in how our streets are changing. I mean, think about it. It's it's a huge part of our public space in this country, the, the vast majority of it, frankly. It's right outside our front doors, and we tend to take it kind of for granted, like it's something that's always been the same, it's always there. And, you know, that just simply isn't true. It changes, and it evolves to meet our needs. You know, in Portland, certainly, and I think this is true in, in older cities like, like Portland is, this started out as basically a public right-of-way for pedestrians and horses, uh, carts. You know, eventually uh, we created all these streetcar neighborhoods. I mean, so what we've done with streets has evolved. And even I'll, – I'll give you another interesting example in, in Portland. In the early 1990s, we started putting in um, speed humps. And, and they're not like what you think of as speed bumps, you know, those really annoying, jarring little thing, you know, they're – they're only a foot or two wide and your car goes over and it sounds like, you know, the axle's going to break off. These are, you know, quite wide. I don't know how many feet, six, eight feet or something like that. If you go over them at 25 miles an hour, you know, it's pretty smooth. If you go over 35 miles an hour, then, you know, it feels rather jarring. And a year or two ago, the city put in, I think it's thousandth speed hump oh, or speed wow. bump, whatever you want to call them. And, um, Hardly anybody really noticed that. It certainly wasn't remarked on at the time. Yet, in this time, uh, you know, our, our traffic safety statistics just keep improving now. Leave cyclists aside, but just overall, uh, in the last few years, the city is having a, a better state safety statistics than literally it's had as long as it's been keeping them since the 1920s. You know, literally almost the, the whole of the mass automobile age. So, uh, sorry, I kind of rambled there a little bit, but that's a subject that interests me, and I'm thinking about where I might go with that. Mm -hmm. It's fun. This is a new subject for me, uh, cycling safety, city improvements. I'm intrigued with traffic. 
as a subject too. I just read, I think just last night, um, reading a book, the author says playgrounds for children weren't invented until after the automobile came around, <laughs> implying that kids would play in the streets. Yeah. Well, even, you know, uh, you know, one thing that was, I, I'm 56. I, I grew up, you know, basically I was a kid in the sixties and in, in the early seventies and grew up in Oakland, California. And like many people my age, I had what was called a free-range childhood. You know, you came home from school, told your your parents, uh, you know, mom usually, uh, I'll be home for dinner, you know, or she told us that, be home for dinner. And and then you just headed out on your bike or on foot. And, you know, we would play endless games of uh, football in the streets, and that would seem to be our favorite sport, or frisbee, or uh, you know, whatever. But I remember these endless games of football. And, and we seemed to have this agreement with the motorists that when they came traveling up, if we were in the middle of the play, they waited until we were gone. And if we were done with the play, we got out of the way. So the cars went by. And it was just, uh, once again, the sort of safety in numbers. These motorists, they expected to see kids playing at this particular place out in the street because we were always out there every day. And, uh, you know, so it, we didn't use a playground very much in fact there really wasn't one very near my very very near my house so you had a bike as a kid and yeah yeah rode all over the place and and that is one thing that is uh kind of sad about childhood nowadays is you don't have that free-range childhood anymore and one of the things in fact i devoted a chapter to it my book of kind of bringing kids back to bikes you know what will it take and the whole movement to once again kind of help kids get to walking and uh, riding to school. And, and I do think, you know, this has not been helpful to have kids chauffeured everywhere. I mean, even if parents were to take the time to park four or five blocks away from a school and walk those four or five blocks with their kids, I think would be a good thing. You'd reduce all the congestion around schools. Uh, you'd get a little bit of exercise in the morning. I'd argue that be a good thing if you could walk even further than that with kids. I'm I'm a a huge fan of of walking. In fact, okay, here's my my one other tip. You know, and I never thought of this before I started working on this book. When I was driving, I was probably like most people that if you're driving somewhere, it's almost like this competition, how close can I park? You know? And boy, if I park right out in front of the restaurant, I you know, I'm, you scored. I, I won the lottery. <laughs> and I've totally changed my attitude about it. When I do drive someplace now, I look for a parking place that is within walking distance. And then I grab the first one I see. And if it's a half mile, that's fine by me. You know, I mean, generally speaking, I, maybe I have, you know, I'm looking for something within a quarter mile or something like that. You know, I enjoy the brisk walk. Feels good to get out of the car. I don't stress over finding a parking place very much. That's, I like that. That's yeah. A good strategy. Yeah. Yeah. It pains me to see I've got school age. I've got a boy in high school. And when they were in elementary school, I could walk them to school. But I noticed that, you know, I was the walker. My wife would prefer to drive them in the car. And the kids preferred being driven to school. There was something about status or something. They felt weird yeah. <laughs> walking to school. And, and it, that's the thing, you know. One of the things that I'd never, also never thought about a great deal, and this is a great kind of a, a political lesson to me for, for a, a whole range of things, but we have 
in America very much this John Wayne, Gary Cooper myth of the individual. You know, we're all lone coyotes and we go our own way. And the truth is, you know, humans are a very social creature. I hate to say it, but kind of more like sheep. And we follow trends. We want to be like everybody else more. And, you know, if everybody else is getting driven to school, yeah, why do they want to be the one oddball out walking? And it is not very pleasant to walk when you're having to, you know, be surrounded by cars and yes, nobody's watching true. for you. Right, and, and you know, it's a virtual cycle or a vicious cycle, depending on which way things are going. Well, Jeff, we're talking about your book, Peddling Revolution, How Cyclists Are Changing American Cities. And uh, I'm sure others have said it to you, Jeff, but I find myself enjoying the book very much. And I'm taking time these days to look back and ask myself, why am I so interested in cycling and advocacy and safety? And in part, it's due to reading your books. So well, thanks I so much. It. I really appreciate that. It's been and a pleasure. I'd, I'd recommend it to anybody who's trying to make a difference in their city. Huh? Well, thank you. Yeah, Thanks for joining me on the show today, Jeff. We're back in the studio, and once again, I'd like to say thank you to BikeTiresDirect.com. Check them out, please. Well, what a week it's been in Southern California. The Los Angeles City Council unanimously adopted the Los Angeles Bicycle Plan. Wow. I'm familiar with the LA Bicycle Plan, and you can find links to it on the website. Go to CDMCyclist.com. I have a little category called Plagiarize This, and you'll find links to the LA Bicycle Plan. Why was I so interested down here in Newport Beach? What could be gained? Well, the LA Bike Plan has, I think, the section I'm most interested in, 150-page technical design guidelines. So, any imaginable intersection, tricky situation in your community, the folks in Los Angeles have described it and designed workarounds. Anyway, that's one good reason to check out the L.A. Bicycle Plan. In the same week, San Diego County sets aside $2.5 billion, yes, billion dollars for bicycle infrastructure. It's all part of their 30-year plan. And that's no small change, huh? And then I was tickled to be present. I was on the call with Mark Bixby and Alan Crawford when their meeting with Caltrans and the Port of Long Beach, all about the billion-dollar project to rebuild the Desmond Bridge. And success. They're a long effort to convince the Port and Caltrans of the importance of bike lanes and pedestrian access succeeds. And so the project will go out to bid with a mandatory requirement for bike lanes and pedestrian access. It all adds up to a fantastic week. Uh, really encouraging, huh? Well, speaking of weeks, next week I'm off to Washington, D.C. for the National Bike Summit. It's my first time attending. I understand there are over 700 registered attendees, so that's a big crowd, 700 people. So it's going to be interesting I'll meet a lot of new people, future guests on my show. I will meet in Washington next week. I'll come back with lots of stories, all subject for future shows. Well, thanks so much for listening, and good night.